If you are a pastor, preacher, one of the things that you are constantly thinking about is connecting to the generations that you speak to. It might be the generations behind you. It might be the generations ahead of you. It might even be, in many ways, your generation. If you're not a pastor or a preacher, trust me when I tell you that is something that preachers spend their time thinking about, how to connect with other generations. Well, today, that is exactly what we're talking about. Thank you so much for listening to the Churchology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holmes. And today on the show, we get the privilege to talk to Daryl Hall. Daryl is the campus pastor of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Conyers, Georgia, where he regularly preaches and teaches across five generations. And Daryl, at the time of this recording, is about to release a brand new book called Speaking Across Generations, messages that satisfy boomers, Xers, millennials, Gen Z, and beyond. And so today we are diving in to preaching. If you lead a small group, if you lead a Bible study, if you work with kids, adults, teenagers, it it does not matter. This is something that we not only need to talk about, but to grow in. How do we communicate the unchanging message of the gospel in ever-changing generations? And today we do a deep dive into that with Daryl Hall. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Now, at the time of this recording, the day of this release, Daryl's book is not out yet. You can click on the links in the show notes and pre-order the book. I would highly encourage you to do that. You can connect with Daryl on social media. All of the links that we talk about mention. He mentioned some great things coming out along with the release of the book. Make sure to stick around at the end of the interview. And before we even dive in, I would love for you just to take a second and share today's episode on social media. Share today's episode on social media. Maybe you want to tag a couple of friends. If you've got a minute, you can leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast. That just helps more people find the show, jump in to the conversation. All right, let's not wait anymore. Let's dive right into today's interview with Daryl Hall on the Churchology Podcast. All right. Well, today on the show, we are excited to talk to Daryl Hall. Daryl, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Mark. How are you? Man, I'm doing really good. I'm excited to dive into uh, your book, Speaking Across Generations. And so we are talking about preaching today. And yeah. I would love to hear, um, what, were, what were you seeing, hearing in terms of preaching that led you to write the book? Yeah, great question, Mark. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be uh, on the show today. I want to greet all your, you know, your listeners and your audience and just, you know, thank them for, uh, for tuning in. Um, so I think one of the things I was seeing in preaching, and I kind of speak about this somewhat in the book, but we can go elaborate here. I felt like preachers were trying to do the right thing the wrong way. So I was seeing preachers primarily that I, you know, who's preaching, I, um, I liked over the years, I had been nourished by, had tried to learn from, and I watched as they tried to change and augment certain things in their presentation to apparently reach a more younger, uh, younger demographic compared to the one they were currently reaching. And I watched what I thought, in my opinion, was them doing the right thing the wrong way, fixing the wrong things first in hopes that it would have a positive impact on their ability to, uh, you know, to reach a younger generation. And then, you know, 
cringeworthy moments where you will see a, a magnificent preacher try to use some kind of lingo that they think in the moment could, um, you know, help their case or, you know, make them more relatable. And I realized that that was more of a, of a cheap kind of offhanded way of trying to do what they really desired, which was to connect. But then how else could they know what to do unless, you know, somebody, you know, assume this undertaking of, of really researching, investigating, and kind of forming and shaping what it looks like to rhetorically speak the language of or connect with another generation. So that's what I was saying. Another thing I was saying was preachers my age. So at the time, I started pastoring when I was 27, and I was seeing preachers my age and younger assuming pulpit positions where we were responsible to preach to, pastor, or shepherd people much older than us hmm. and the anxiety that comes with that about am I enough to stand in this big space of uh you know spiritual influence in the lives of people much older than me who have way more life experience than I do how do I fulfill their unspoken expectations of what their preaching must be uh, and, and I'm in a deficit you know by, by default of my my youth is that is that so so that's how you you said you were in your 20s when you really yeah. noticed that and so is that kind of where you would be now do you do you still feel that tension of of speaking to older people how how, how have you kind of seen this in in your own life this trying to preach and speak to different generations yeah great question so i don't i don't think i i sense the tension as much now from the standpoint of uh, pressure I do sense it from the standpoint of responsibility. I think God has given me the opportunity to kind of grow in preaching. I started preaching when I was 17 and my, my preaching, uh, you know, experience is abnormal in a good way. So the church I'm a part of now is a multi-site church, five campuses in the metro area. But we've been technically a mega church since probably 03, 04. And at the time I was, you know, an 11th grader. I started preaching as a senior in high school and almost immediately became my pastor's pulpit assistant hmm. and double. So when he was out, you know, I would be 19, 20 years old, preaching to thousands of adults and having to grapple with it. And I definitely felt the pressure and tension then. Now, when I reflect on it, I feel a responsibility. Why did God give me those formative experiences, that baptism through fire? And how do I look retrospectively on that? and gain, you know, wisdom that I could pair with some research, you know, to serve other people. So now I sense that at 35, I'm a millennial, my generation, I sense that I'm in a sweet spot. And, and for me, in, in my local church where I preach, people have given me the space to grow into myself and have affirmed that. And I think that helps any preacher of any age when people begin to give you the space to be you and not who they, you know, think that you should be as their preacher or as their pastor. That's helped me to be comfortable in my own skin and kind of grow. And then also, a lot of the research is what I heard back from my congregation on top of, you know, the, um, the research we did nationwide to kind of subsidize the theories and, and hypotheses. So my, my people talk back to me what I was doing by mistake. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Working. And then help me to better do it and help me to stop doing the things I thought were working that quite frankly had little impact on my, 
really doing that. So are there are there signs that a preacher, a communicator can can look at to to maybe say to them, you know what, I don't think that I'm connecting with this generation. Yes. Maybe it's the generation behind me or ahead of me. What what are some mm -hmm. of those signs? Yeah, great, great question. My perspective is that every preacher speaks our own generational tongue fluently. Okay. Even unconsciously, we're not even aware of how we connect with people of a certain age group. And it's usually our group and maybe the group right before us, meaning the group that influenced us. It's those groups that are either the one behind us or separated by another cohort. So I'm a millennial. Right. I could more easily speak to Gen X because Gen X is right before me. My parents are Gen Xers. My pastors are Gen X. So I was shaped in large part by Gen X points of views. But then when we start to talk about, you know, alpha or, you know, boomers or elders, that's when I have to stretch myself to be able to understand them a little bit more. So some of the signs a preacher can look, look at, here's one of the most practical things pastors always look at. But if they look at it through a generational lens, would tell them who they're not reaching. The church roster. Look at the church roster and maybe go back as long as you've been, you know, pastor. So if that's 20 years, you have more data. If that's five years, you have less. But look at the average birth year, not age. Look at the birth year because the birth year determines what generational cohort they were born in and study the trend of how the birth years of members on the roster has changed or not changed during uh, during your tenure. And that would be, to me, the first very practical thing any pastor can do. But uh, what a preacher could do is a preacher could look at what opportunities. So if you're not a pastor, meaning you don't have access to a roster of people that you shepherd to give you that immediate feedback, meaning you travel or you, you're a guest, I think to look at what types of events are you being invited to and what types of events are you not being invited to? What types of opportunities are you getting over and again and what types of opportunities were just a one-off? Uh, I think those are good signs to, to give feedback to what generation you're able to connect with. And, not, and then also pay attention to your own anxieties. Pay attention to, to how do the demographics in the room affect the way you feel about your level to connect with that room. Because I'm going to tell you, Mark, <laughs> I've been a preacher since I was 17, public speaking since I was 14. That anxiety never leaves. But I can assure you that that anxiety rises and falls depending upon the demographics in the room. And sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that those demographics are socioeconomic, right? Meaning, how could I, how could somebody like me connect with somebody in the upper class or racial, which is a very apparent demographic to see racial right? or educational. You know what I'm saying? I, I have an earned doctorate, but I can imagine how would, you know, someone without, you know, formal education feel about connecting with a room full of people with much education, that, that anxiety. But I think the generational one is one that has as much an impact that we're not always aware of. So if I'm 35, I'm a millennial, and I walk into a room full of 60-year-olds, how would that affect me in my anxiety compared to if I walked into a room full of 25-year-olds? And so, you know, I think that internal anxiety would kind of give some insight to and who I can reach, who I can't reach.
you know, one of the principles you, you talk about in the book, I was going to ask about it later, but it, it seems like it might fit, fit in here. You, you talk about um, address, you know, if we want to see a certain demographic in the room, and even if they're not there, begin to address that demographic, begin to speak to them. So is, is that one way to, so, so if I am a, you know, I, I am a pastor. So if I want to know, there is, you know, uh, a generation that I'm not, I'm not currently connecting with. Would one so one of those indicators would be they're not here, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, 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 and when it comes to that, I think sometimes we assume as preachers, we can we can wrongly assume that I preach to who's here and miss that I have the influence to preach to who I believe should be here. That's powerful. Yeah. Right. So there's a difference, but, you know, the cart before the horse, which which is the which is the input, which is the output. And I think that those of us who are in pastoral roles have a unique advantage that other preachers may not have. And that is you can preach to who you hope to see. Mm. And the tension that creates for the pastor is, OK, how do I connect with who's here, but also create space for who's not here that I want to be here? And that's easier to see from a standpoint of believer, non-believer. Right. I shape the rhetoric of my sermon to believers because believers are present. But if I want to see non-believers, how should I approach my preaching with this text? I think the same is true generationally. And if I have a room full of boomers, how do I preach to the boomers without losing them? But then also preach to the millennials or Gen Z. I hope to create space for in the next two to three years to see them increase. I think one way to do it is to begin to speak their language, but in so doing, to tell the boomers in the room that I'm going to take a different approach because I sense that we're all in a space where we may want to learn how to connect with people of a younger generation. And so if I approach this in a way that rubs you the wrong way, don't see this as my malpractice of preaching. I'm trying to teach you real time how to have spiritual conversation around certain texts topics and biblical truths with people of Gen Z. And so it's the, the, the way you, you make the boomers in the room comfortable with you changing your language and rhetoric is you remind the boomers of the room of the millennials in their family and Gen Z in their family who are not in the room. Hmm. So instead of seeing them as, you know, why would you preach to non-church folk and miss us? We're church. Mm -mm. What about the generation in your family that you wish was in this room? Let me show you how to have a conversation about, you know, uh, let me preach the gospel in a way that would better reach Gen Z. And for boomers, it's training of how to do it. Hmm. And it also creates space, I believe, for, for Gen Z to begin to be uh, to be present. Yeah, speak more to that that uh, principle you just you just said. I can't remember exactly how you said it, but but so many times it's it's so true. We we I'm I'm speaking to the people in the room. Yeah, and 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 we rarely think about the influence to to begin to speak even in that moment. They're not there, but but to begin to speak to people who are not there. Can you talk about that? Unpack that 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 yeah. kind of influence to begin to speak to people who are not there. Yeah, yeah, great, um, great question. The spark for this idea came from uh, from Timothy Keller's book Center Church, which mm. is an amazing book, uh, and. When he got to that point, he was talking about how to preach to urbanites that you hope to see 
And I took it and just expanded it more to the generational languages as I, you know, investigated and kind of helped shape at least this idea for now. I think that the pastor has the influence and the pastor has the vision to preach towards the demographic complexity they hope to see in their congregation. Hmm. But sometimes the pastor can make the mistake of thinking I'm a steward of what is instead of saying that I'm also a, a creator or influencer of what can be or should be. And we can do this in our preaching as we hope to change the generational demographic of our congregation. Okay, it's, it's easier to see in other more, um, you know, practical leadership issues. So let's say, for example, you know, if uh, if your worship space is too small and you either want to build a bigger building or buy a bigger building, you know that, hey, we have to address this worship space issue. Before you even get to the worship space you desire, in the current space, the pastor begins to have a vision, that hope, that belief, praying about it, and the pastor begins to lead towards, preach towards, raise money towards the fulfillment of this vision because we need a new worship space. The same is true when it comes to whatever generation that we are clearly not reaching hmm. and have a vision for an intergenerational congregation. And that's really, I believe, you know, my heartbeat in this season, Mark, and I'm really excited about being able to encourage pastors that it's possible. But you got to see it before you realize it. And as you see it, you preach towards it. And then just as we would follow a vision through from conception, blueprints, raising offering, you know, break ground, building the worship space, in the same way, we can begin to speak to a generation that's absent today that we hope and believe, you know, in the next year, two years or what have you will be more present. Does that make, did I answer your question? Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. The illustration that you okay. use of, you know, you use the illustration of even raising money for a building fund, uh, that speaks to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so, so for me, that was very crystallizing. I'm like, oh man, I'm with you. Yeah, okay. yeah I got you. Cool. That's really good. You know, in the book, you talk about a couple concepts. I would love for you to define. You talk about uh, generations are people groups. Yeah. And so, um, let so for our audience, let's uh, come at it from a couple angles. What is a people group, and how are generations people groups? Yeah, good question. So, first of all, a people group is defined, I believe, by the Lusang Committee. I believe I'm pronouncing that right, as a group of people through which the gospel can travel without being inhibited by language and culture barriers. Okay. All right. So a people group is a group of people through which the gospel can travel without language and cultural barriers. Stopping is spread. Mm -hmm. And the automatic way that we apply this concept of people group is to ethnicities. Because ethnicities can spread news, whether it's good news or bad, but mm -hmm. can spread the good news of Jesus without cultural and language barriers because they share a similar culture and speak a similar language. Mm -hmm. All right, my argument is, is that if we see generations as people groups, what we will understand is, is that generations have their own language and culture. Yeah. 
and that that language and culture is static as it is shaped in a generation during its coming of age years. And so as a generation is between about, you know, 15 to about 25 or 30, that generation's culture is shaped through factors outside of its control. Mm -hmm. Some of those factors are like political factors, uh, social factors, uh, technological factors, um, you know, uh, e even communication factors. So for example, one of my arguments is that elders prefer a certain type of preaching because during their coming of age years, one way communication was the way radio. Right? So many of them heard, you know, presidential speeches and addresses via radio. There was no space for retort, dialogue, yeah. interchange. There was an authoritative voice coming through a radio that shaped the way they received communication by comparison you know, millennials, we've had uh, two-way pagers since we were, oldest of us, since we were 17 years old. So the concept of one-way communication only is foreign to millennials because due to technological advancement and the flow of, of, of communication during our coming of age years, dialogue is more our language than, you know, than one-way communication. And so if we see generations as groups through which the gospel can travel Without many cultural or language barriers, we would better see how generations may be the new wave of people groups as ethnicities begin to blend, continue to blend, and, and, and move all across the world out of countries of origin into melting pots. So once you start getting melting pots, what happens then to the way these people interact? Well, I think generationally, particularly once you get to millennials and younger, that a millennial in Atlanta is more like a millennial in Tacoma, Washington. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a gen a Gen Zer in 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 Atlanta is more like a Gen Zer in Cape Town mm -hmm. than a Boomer in those same spaces were forty years ago, because of technology. The world is you know smaller. You know, communication and trans transportation is quicker. Uh, globalization, I think, affects that. And so my generation of younger, I think there's more of a global, it's easier to see that, uh, if that makes sense. That we're we're more like a people group. Millennials have, I, I kind of get to this point in the book, a Black millennial and a white millennial in America have more in common than either of their grandparents have in common with each other or than either of them have in common with their own grandparents hmm. from a communication and cultural standpoint. So, did I, I ask that question? Oh yeah, absolutely. I just, uh, from, for me, when I read the book, I, I had never really, I'd never really heard that, heard it specifically put that way. And it was just so helpful to begin to see generations as people groups. And another of the uh, things that I would love for you to speak into, you talk about generational intelligence. And yeah. And so, so, so what is that? And then how do we grow in generational intelligence? Oh man, great question. So generational intelligence is, in my definition, it is the understanding of how a multitude of cultural factors, some I just mentioned, shape the way people born within a certain window of time mm -hmm 
engage with the world. So it's studying sociological factors. And from those factors, learning how a people born into those factors may see various, you know, uh, um, various things from a value lens standpoint, like how they may see marriage, how they may see sexuality, how they may view government or the role of government, how they may view the church, how they may view racial uh, relations, how they may view gender relations, uh, how they may view, in this case, communication. Mm -hmm. And so generational intelligence is, is something that I am a student of, um, but you know, you, you can grow in gener generational intelligence. Barner Group are, you know, they live in that space. You know, the space of generations to get a true review of how things are going, quantitative, qualitative studies that reflect trends, that's generational intelligence, right? Studying, surveying, learning, listening, focus groups, which is something I talk about in the group. Those are ways that you grow your generational intelligence. And to me, what it does, Mark, is it gets me out of generalized language like, yeah, the older generation, yeah, that younger generation, yeah, those older folk, and yeah, those younger folk. Oh, it helps me to be more nuanced in my appreciation how people born between 46 and 64, baby boomers, how are they uniquely shaped in ways that are real, but maybe subconscious? And if I grow in my understanding of the world that shaped baby boomers, maybe I'll grow in my compassion towards baby boomers and become a missionary to baby boomers, right? I think another benefit of seeing generations as people groups is now I see myself preacher as missionary too. That's really good. Going to another country that spoke another language with another culture, I'm a missionary to that country. And what I would hope to do is to get some kind of cross-cultural training to help me better understand their sensibilities and to better see some of the blind spots in my sensibilities mm. and to get over my blind spots to get the gospel to them in, in theirs. So if I see generations as people groups, and I realize, hmm. Yeah, I may have been born in a millennial generation, but now that I'm pastoring this intergenerational church, I'm a missionary to, I'm a servant of. I have to be willing to adjust my culture. I have to be willing to drop my language and embrace theirs if I'm going to serve them in a way, you know, that would glorify God and dignify their, uh, you know, their lived experience. Man, and so, so Daryl, I would love to dive into uh, some of these uh, groups that you talk about. So the generations you talk about in the book are elders, boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. And for each one, you give a, a style of preaching, an effective form of communication for each one. And, and as I was reading, uh, what really stuck out to me, so elders is propositional, boomers is skeptical, and Gen yeah. X is intellectual. And yeah. for me, as I was reading that, th there seems to be some similarities between those, uh, what are the differences between yeah. those styles of preaching? Propositional, skeptical, intellectual. What are, what are some of the differences there? Yeah, great question. So my hope is that as people read the book and I created some diagrams that uh, I believe are in the appendices or maybe right in the text yeah. that show that these languages compound on each other. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not just distinct and 
There's a continuum, yeah, but there's also a compounding. So what I mean is, oppositional is number one for elders, right? When I get the boomers, you don't do away with propositional language. You just put practical language on top of it. It becomes number one propositional too. When I get the Gen X, you don't do away with propositional and skeptical. You just put intellectual on top. And, and, and intellectual language is the door through which you get back to your proposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So we, don't, we don't drop these languages as the generations progress. We compound, we build on top of. So the difference between propositional, skeptical, and intellectual language is propositional is the preacher says what I'm going to say, says what I told you I was going to say based on what the Bible said. And when I'm done saying it, I remind you of what I just said. (laughs) It's very direct. It's very clear. There's not a lot of moving back and forth in the sense of, of, there's there's little to no shifting in point of view, tone of voice. Uh, there's an authoritative, direct, you know, this is what the Bible says, and this is what I'm going to say about what the Bible says, and now I'm done telling you what the Bible said, and I tell you that's what I was going to say. It's more direct. Skeptical language is, there's a tease there. There's a slight tease back towards propositional. So skeptical language is, um, is you know, C.S. Lewis's Trialing of Jesus. Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, he, he could be a liar. You know, he said he was the great I am before Abraham was I am. He could be a lunatic. How could a 33-year-old say that David was, he's David's son, but he's also David's Lord? Hmm, I don't know. Or he could actually be who he said he was. There's this tinge of skepticism, meaning... We, we build tension before the proposition <laughs> alleviates the tension. Yes, that's what, says, that's what the Bible says. And so propositional is very direct. This is what I'm going to talk about. This is what the Bible said. I'm going to say it. And I told you that's what I was going to say. Skeptical is, hmm, okay. Well, perhaps, maybe, but no. Oh, for sure. There's a, there's a, uh, a, 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 a climactic, Dramatic rise, tension that leads to the, whew, okay? Intellectual is marked by a distinct vocabulary, a higher vocabulary, more research, more evidence, proof of, hmm. right? So let me give you an example. If I'm preaching, um, and I kind of do this in the book, if I'm preaching John three sixteen to elders, I'm going to say, you know, Today, I'm going to tell you how Jesus is the only son of God. He's the only son of God because, you know, he was born of a virgin. He's the only son of God because he lived a sin-free life. He's the only son of God because he got up from the grave. Then I tell you that he was the only son of God. If I'm preaching to a room full of boomers, I may use C.S. Lewis's trial right? But if I'm preaching to a room full of Gen Xers, I'm going to give them proof, mm-hmm. your biblical proof that Jesus is the only son of God. So I may do some archeological stuff. I may do some um, some of the th- satires that, you know, Josephus and Tacitus and other people wrote about Jesus. I may use some historical sourcing outside of the primary text of scripture, but that served the point of scripture. I'm going to, I'm going to 
come through the door of intellect. And I may use, you know, um, more multi-syllable language, or I may have more of a definite outline, something that lends itself to academic or intellectual stimulation prior to, or as a doorway to, getting back to the biblical proposition that Jesus is going to sign. Did I answer your question? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you you reference uh, you just now gave that example. One of the things that I did love about the book is so all your chapters about the generations, uh, you use the same text. You give an example and it's the same text every single time. That was just super helpful. How You just awesome. here's the same text in every single generation. And so yeah. uh, so for millennials, the uh, effective preaching method is dialogical preaching. Uh, yeah. and I would just love for you. I just love uh, you. Just feel fancy saying the word dialogical. I know. I don't even. Am I saying it right? I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Oh yeah, dialogical. Oh man, see, see, I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, I gotta check. What is that? So, what is dialogical preaching? Yeah, dialogical preaching, as as I'm, uh, you know, seeking to define it, is preaching that sounds like listening. That's good. Mm -hmm. All right, it is preaching that that embraces the true nature of dialogue. And dialogue is a two-way communication where we do as much listening as we do speaking, if not more listening. But the beauty of dialogue is that Mark and Daryl engage in dialogue, right? All right, so of, of, of any given topic and point, Mark may feel this way, Daryl may feel this way. But dialogue, speaking and listening, does this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as we dialogue, we not only move closer to each other, but we also move closer to a new perspective because of each other than what we had before we engaged in dialogue. Yeah. All right. So dialogical preaching is preaching that gives respect to differing points of views about any given subject mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's less authoritative and it sounds more like a listen so for example let's say if i'm preaching about um let's say if i'm preaching about marriage yeah and and you know i'm preaching from first corinthians seven <laughs> right the wife's body does not belong to her <laughs> husband's body I wish that you could all be like me, but if you don't have control, get married. Uh, you know, don't don't stall each other out. If you do, mutually agree upon it for a short amount of time and then come back together. You know, don't give give room to the devil. Okay. If I'm going to preach 1 Corinthians 7, there's a clear proposition there. That clear proposition is in a monogamous marriage between one male and one female that a commitment to serving one another sexually is the responsibility and delight of both partners, all right? Okay, if that's the proposition, and I'm speaking to a room full of millennials, I would approach it dialogically by not putting my finger on it immediately, but by giving respect to how they may disagree with that. That's good, yeah. That's and so good. I may... <clears throat> may come out and say, you know, something like, um, I may even, in dialogical language, I may even point out some of the blind spots in the church or in preachers 
having preached said passage in the past. So I may do something like, um, you know, when I was reading this passage, preparing for this message, I can remember some harrowing experiences of hearing other preachers talk about concepts that Paul is presenting. Hmm. Maybe you, like me, have been scarred a time or two when a preacher too heavy-handed, too authoritative, whom some of us may call a Bible thumper, seem to know more about scripture and love more about this book than they knew about people or seem to love about people. Hmm. And as I reflect on my own personal psychological struggles or scars from hearing a preacher talk about sexuality in the context of marriage in a way that felt unloving, I realized how even as the preacher today, it was difficult for me to really get to the message of what I believe God is saying through this text. If you've ever thought about marriage and your stomach turns, I agree, I understand. When we look at the divorce rate, even in the kingdom of God, you know, such and such. When we look at, you know, the negative effects of, you see what I'm saying? What, what I'm doing is I am, I'm sitting with them before I ask them to come stand with me. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I would get back to the proposition through dialogue. I would find where we agree. I would tell them where I struggle. I would tell them how it makes me feel. And then I would say certain stuff like, and if you're thinking such and such, I hear you. Yeah. And frankly, in some ways, I understand. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> but if you would allow me just a few moments, would you allow me to share with you a different point of view? And I really believe that if we were to open our minds and hearts, that perhaps we can get past some of the psychological scarring and maybe receive some principle today that the Holy Spirit could use to revolutionize the health of our marriages. Mm, yeah. The first thing we'll note in this text, spouses are first servants, right? Another way I, uh, another way I, I employ dialogical language is I use questions in my main point instead of statements. Oh, that's good, yeah. Right, yeah. so... How can spouses serve one another would be my main point. Hmm. Or I may use a, uh, another way I'll do it is I'll, I'll try to create what Haddon Robinson described as a big idea, right? This one proposition, 17 words or less, that tells you what the sermon is going to be about based on what the text is about. And I would take that big idea as Haddon Robinson defines it and clauses in that big idea will, will compound to be my main point. Right. So I'll yeah. start, for example, I preached a sermon in Hebrews about rest. And my, my big idea was rest is God's blessing for people who trust in Jesus. But my first point was rest. My second point was rest is God's. It belongs to him. My third point was rest is God's blessing. You can't buy it. Only God can give it. Rest is God's blessing for people, you know, people like you and me. But rest is God's. You see what I'm saying? So there's a there was a building on of this concept to further the dialogue a little bit closer to what I'm hoping you would consider. That's really helpful. That's really good. And then for Gen Z is relational preaching. Yeah. And so how can a, a monologue of 
pastor preacher, one person speaking. Yeah. How, how can that be relational preaching? Yeah, great question. Now, I'm going to just be transparent, Mark. This one is more difficult to do. Yeah. Purely in a stand and deliver type uh, uh, presentation. Hmm. But here, here's why, what I hope to help us get closer to. First of all, it's easier to be relational than it is to preach relational. That's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because in some ways, being relational in past generations would harm the preacher's influence. Mm -hmm. So, so the more mystical, uh, the more Moses-like, the more distant the preacher was, the more authoritative their, their message. And so things I believe helped the preacher 40 years ago can hurt the preacher to reach Gen Z. And that is to be relational. When I mean be relational, I don't mean be charismatic. That's good. Yeah. 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 You know what I'm saying? We could be, we, we could be charismatic. I'm sorry. We could be charismatic. Uh, but charisma and, and being relational is two different things. And the main reason why is because Gen Z has grown up in a world where People who used to be inaccessible are as accessible as me picking up this phone and I can go on Stephen Curry's Instagram and respond to something he posted. And there's a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Or he may respond in kind. Mm, yeah. Right. Okay. So how do you preach relationally? I think you preach relationally. The less authoritative you are in your tone and use of positional rank, the closer you can get to being relational in your preaching. Hmm. Remember, my, my idea is that relational preaching stacks on top of dialogical preaching. Yeah. So dialogue is how true intimacy is formed. So carry the dialogue forward and add on to it more of a compassionate point of view, a less authoritative point of view. Um, more of a listening ear. And here's the main thing. Relational preaching, uh, I think, is, is one where there is a consistency of presence. Mm -hmm. Right? Presence is felt through the preaching. Not, not okay, intellectual preaching is, this is heard through the preaching. <laughs> oh, I can hear that he, he's smart. I can hear that she did her homework. I can hear that they studied. Relational preaching is I can feel that they care. That's good. Yeah. I can feel that they have sat where I sit. Hmm. I can feel that they are genuine. So relational preaching comes from here to here. Intellectual preaching comes from here to here. Mm -hmm. that's yeah, that's really helpful. And so, we, we, so, and, and a lot of this communicators, some of this, they just might do intuitively. They're just not aware yeah. of it. Uh, but yeah. but when we communicate, when we're preaching, should we be thinking of all of this, try to use all of these ways of, of preaching when we when we communicate? Great question. Okay, here's where I don't want to be, I don't want to cause confusion. My hope was, was to encourage preachers of all ages and stages that if you're willing, it's possible for you to reach a generation that you were not born in. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually apply this, I can give some ideas and then leave it to the creativity, anointing, and gifting 
uh, of the individual preacher. Here's some simple ways to do it. If you plan your preaching out on an annual menu or annual calendar, you can decide with certain topics to approach it more dialogically or more propositionally, right? So if I know I'm gonna do a stewardship sermon series in the month of May, if I'm gonna plan that out, I can plan to approach that from a dialogical and relational language instead of a propositional. So you can do it by way of series. Mm -hmm. The way you could do it is, how I did in the book with John 3.16. What I've learned is people sometimes need to hear the same concept preached three or four times before they really get it one time in the way the preacher hopes. Mm -hmm. So let's say if, if we want to do a series about, um, you know, about marriage, right? and we're going to take the month of September and do a series about marriage. And for those four Sundays, you could intersperse the languages around the concept of marriage using different texts if you want. But what you're doing is you are, you're shaping this same biblical concept or principle from different points of views in hopes that by the time September is done, we would have talked propositionally about marriage. We would have talked intellectually about it. <laughs> we would have talked skeptically about it, dialogically about it, relationally about it, and people, relationships of all ages at some point could have connected with the one main principle that we were trying to bring out, which is, you know, God created marriage to the right person is great, and God can use it to help us to be more like Jesus, something like that. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Wait, you can pick a series to aim at a certain uh, generational demographic, or you can pick a principle and spin it and spin that same principle in one series using different gener generational languages as you approach that one, you know, biblical principle. Um, I, I think those are ways, some practical ways that, that you can do it. Yeah, Daryl, this this has been great. The book is called Speaking Across Generations. Uh, everybody watching, listening, uh, if you don't get it, I can't imagine the other wrong decisions you're making in life. And you got to get this book. It's just been super helpful for me. And um, actually gave uh, uh, IVP actually sent me uh, sent me another copy of it. I gave it to somebody on our staff yesterday and said, you, you've got to read this book. Um, nice. Yeah. And so before we started recording, you actually uh, talked a little bit about a course that you're coming out with to yeah. go along with the book. Talk a little bit about that course and then tell us how we can connect with you so that we'll be able to make sure we grab it. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Um, so, yeah, there's a course that I'm putting together. It's going to be hosted on Think Ific that will subsidize the concepts in the book. So like the things that you brought out as an excellent interviewer to help elaborate and for us to go you know, back and forth towards clarity, it's kind of hard to write yourself completely clear in a book in the ways that you have kind of asked me questions. And what I'm also noticing is since I've completed the research of the manuscript, I have thought more creatively about how to do this, but I would rather display it so that people can take what they see and hear and then adjust it as necessary to their own personality and feel more equipped, you know, to apply the theories that, that, that they're reading about. So the course is going to look at how generations use different sensibilities to engage the same world, how generations see differently, hear differently, discern differently, 
speak differently and engage differently. And then I also give some very practical ways like how to raise an offering in generational languages, how to galvanize you know, a volunteer base in generational languages. Some of the very practical things that churches do through our communication outside of the preaching moment that can help better connect with a generational uh, you know, people group. And that course will be up. My book comes out uh, April 12th. I know some people already got copies, but the technical date for it is April 12th. And by then, the course will be ready as well. And the best way now to connect with me is either via Facebook, Daryl Hall, or via Instagram and Twitter at I am Daryl Hall. And through those mediums, you'll get more, uh, more communication about how to get the course, the book, and hopefully be encouraged as you seek to be a better, you know, a more effective communicator. Oh, that sounds great. We'll link to all of that in the show notes where people can pick up the book okay. as well. Daryl, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Mark, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Again, make sure to check out the show notes so you can go ahead, pre-order or pick up Daryl's book, Speaking Across Generations, depending on when you listen to this. It might be available for pre-order or if you listen to it later on, you can pick it up when it's out. Links to pick it up are in the show notes, as well as where to connect with Daryl on social media and everything that he mentioned online. I can't recommend this book enough. So encouraging and challenging. Maybe you want to read this as a team of communicators with people in your church or with other leaders, preachers, pastors um, from other churches. Such a gift this book is. Highly recommended. Check it out. Daryl Hall's Speaking Across Generations. You don't want to miss it. Now, remember, we have changed the schedule for when episodes come out of the Churchology Podcast. So we are releasing episodes every other Tuesday. And so we'll be back in two weeks. Hey, on social media, you can find Churchology Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what are some topics you'd love for us to dive into on the podcast. Who are some people that you would love to hear us talk to and and interview? We would love to connect with you, our listeners. Thank you guys so much for being a part of it. Until then, see you next time on the Churchology Podcast.